Welcome to Robot Friends, the Internet's podcast of record. Episode 14, Eigenrobot vs. Polymath. Hi all, I'm here with Polymath, that's Polymath with an I. He's at Polymath on Twitter and writes at polymath.substack.com. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. It's been, uh, I'm, I'm staring out the window, snow's on the ground. It's a good day to be inside and talking to people. Yeah, no, right. We're we're totally snowed in here, and the like USPS has refused to deliver us for several days at this point, just because like we they you know they can't get to our driveway, which right you know that that's cool. I'm I'm real with that. It's not. It feels like a betrayal of their mission, sort of that whole no sleet nor snow nor dark of night nor right, whatever right, it right. is. We'll we'll stop the mail, like. You know, it feels like sort of a, a come down from that original mission, which is, is kind of a boast. And, <laughs> um, but you know, no pride our, in your work, man. Come on, right? But but like all of our institutions feel like they've sort of fallen these days. So I, I <laughs> not, not to lead into anything, <laughs> um, but yeah. So um, I mean, some background on polymath. I you know, major Twitter figure and. I guess in the past you've been a political commentator, right? I know less about you from that era because I, I think we didn't know each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. So I actually came into Twitter to to flog a video that I did of so many years, like twelve years ago. Holy um, shit! Yeah. So I did a video. There was this this thing where um, to tr- to try to offset the fact that there was this big huge stimulus as soon as Barack Obama came into office. Um, they, they had this press conference and they're like, we're going to get rid of $250 million worth of spending. And like, everybody was laughing at this, right? All the economists, even Paul Krugman was like, eh, it's not like, that's no money for the federal government. <laughs> Strong Austin power vibes. Right. <laughs> so, so I made a video in which I, I assumed that the, uh, the federal budget was a hundred dollars worth of pennies and I put it all on a table and then I took a penny and I cut it into quarters and said that taking 250 million away. That's a federal crime. That's what I've been told. Um, and then I took about one quarter of a penny away out of the hundred dollars. And I said, that's, here it is. And this is, it's so weird to look at this bat now because it was such a goofy, silly thing to do, but it was the first time people started doing that sort of thing. I mean, not not literally the first time, but it was way, way early. Like YouTube was tiny compared to what it, what YouTube is now. And so yeah. Like, uh, so like I I thought this was cute and funny, and I I think I sent it to like Jonah Goldberg, and I put up a Twitter feed to start talking about that stuff. And so like I got I got invited to the RNC, and they gave me oh, wow they gave me a bullshit award. I have it in my office. It's <laughs> the whole thing. Like I and I'm I'm like 26 when this happens or 27 something like that. Yeah. And it, the whole thing was just ridiculous. But I, I totally soaked it in because I'm 27. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so I, I was doing mostly da- data centric uh, uh, commentary. Um, I was I was probably one of the bigger accounts that that followed. I would follow the BLS jobs data every month on schedule. Um, I would I would dig into all of the information that was like my beat. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I've got, I got like 50,000 followers. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I speak at, I used to speak at a bunch of conferences. I've stopped uh, the Trump era really 
just like kneecapped institutional republicanism or really? like oh totally like they like they stopped all of the new ideas stopped happening when trump came into into power because nobody cared about new ideas it was just it all just kind of became about trump and about like like if if i could i could have like revitalized that thing that i did if i had cast it in a light that was like donald trump is really awesome because they yeah. to pick that stuff up because he does right mm-hmm. so um anyway so like i i i was a, i was a big pro romney sort of guy um and i i never really liked trump but but so i like so a, a lot of my political stuff kind of petered out uh before you and i met yeah um and and i have made a very big intentional effort to like really just get rid of that stuff as much as I can in in the COVID era. Like as soon as I realized what was going on with COVID, I was like, no, everything else is bullshit. Yeah. But so, okay. That's, that's an interesting framing because you know, you you talked about like being really on top of BLS data went that's Bureau of Labor Statistics for those, (laughs) for, for people who, who aren't total fucking nerds, no offense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> but 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 so like it seems to me that you've actually just kind of pivoted to do the same sort of thing as you were describing with covid yeah it, it, yes except that um except that with the bls data like a lot of the times i would make snarky jokes or i would be like let's be real here and i and i it, like it definitely was coming from i like pro republican pro conservative vision but then saying like but let's not fool ourselves let's always look at the real data with covid i don't want people to feel that way like yeah i mean i i think i'm such i am an oversharer to the extreme yeah and and i and so it kind of like my policy preferences are gonna always end up bleeding a little through that but i i, I really want when i talk about covid I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, I can't listen to this guy because he's going to bug the hell out of me because I'm I'm left leaning. Like, mm-hmm. God forbid. All I want to do is just make sure that we've all got this. I want to I want to help people mend fences in terms of expectations that are data centric. Like that. Yeah. If I can do that, that's all I care about, and I I'm happy to have communist friends. And, you know, like anyone on the spectrum, I don't care. I Let's all just accept. Let's all try to accept that the data we're getting is a reasonable representation of reality. And there is no conspiracy, basically. Right. Yeah. Do you. OK, that that's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm personally pretty interested in. Well, not interested in. I I mean, I don't really pay attention to it anymore because I'm in a state of despair more or less about the the actual quality of data that that exists. Okay. Um and God cat, please don't knock over my coffee. Um <laughs> I'm 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 doing this podcast with my feet up and I don't think listeners know how much time I actually spend trying to maneuver around my cat Penelope who 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 just has a very strong sense of property rights around everything that happens at my <laughs> computer desk. Um uh, right so data quality. I I, I mean, you know, I, I did. Yeah, I can talk about data quality and COVID if you want, because I am way into that subject. Yeah, well, I, I think so. I think the object level is is sort of interesting, but it might be hard to track somewhat. So, so maybe just like a high level. I'm curious about what you think of data quality 
just just in the gestalt perhaps and also how how it contrasts with your sense of what bls data quality is like because i i'm i'm sort of like low-key skeptical of that a lot of the time just as somebody who's worked in that that sort of macro data space Mm, um but the covid i would say covid data quality is much higher than bls data quality Uh, wow okay yeah way higher um the 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 uh, the circle of data input to reporting is much tighter with COVID data um, huh. because because the the health department is used to working with pharmacies and it's wor- used to working with hospitals. Um, hospitals have most hospitals, maybe uh, I'm going to give a number that's a guess. So this is not a real number. It's my sense of things. Maybe 60, 70 percent of hospitals in the United States have really like locked in data operations. Right. Yeah. Like massive. Now they might be using like really crappy uh, input devices because they hate upgrading stuff and everything that gets upgraded in a hospital has to go through like FDA approval. And that's a nightmare. Yeah. But, but they, but they do keep track of everything. Right. Um, I got, I got a friend who does um, uh, who did flu, flu surveillance in Canada. And he said for every flu case, they track like 2,500 variables. Wow. Um, it's it's a lot, and they're used to. And of course, in order to do something like that, you have to have your patient information in one table, and then all that patient information just kind of gets grabbed and dragged along with their their flu positive case and sent to the surveillance. There's there's so much data being. Gathered. Do you do you okay? So I mean, and and coming. I mean, we both work in tech and have some familiarity. I think this might be a good baseline, actually. Like, I think probably some of the best data sets in the world exist in large technology companies. Mm-hmm. And how would you say this compares to those data sets? And I, I mean, like, you talk about the the breadth and, and sort of, you know, aggressiveness with which these data sets are computed. But I'm thinking a little bit about that. Um, that comic from from what's his name? Uh, whoever whoever Bite Cuck is, I I actually love him, and I don't mean that as a disparagement, but that's probably the reference point. But there's a guy who's like, I'm doing one thousand computations in my head per second, and all of them are wrong. Right, right. Um, so the give me a second. I pulled out my my headphones because I'm an idiot. Um, so. Compared to the sort of data, so I, I you know, work in a tech company and I actually have been working on analytics because my boss hates me. Um, yeah. And we gather, we gather massive amounts of data about, about the things we do, which I'm not going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and we have people combing through that data. And every time the data is missing like a parameter, someone pokes me and is like, yeah. why is your data data missing this parameter, right? So um, our attitude towards data in, in my company has just been like more MOAR data all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and we, there's a lot, I mean, I would consider it to be fairly, fairly dirty data, um, but it's way cleaner, I mean, uh, way cleaner than almost anything the government gathers. Yeah. Um, when, when you get, when you get government data, the reason government data looks so clean is because they have, they have, um, because they have cleaned it to make it look clean, right? It came in super dirty and they simplified it massively and then gave you like, w- when they had, you know, 
500 variables, they've shortened that down because there's like nobody needs nobody needs that data. So they've shortened it down to 15, right? Mm-hmm. That is that is almost all government data. Um, and and the, and COVID is not really a different different than that. Um, I so I have volunteered for a, a group called the COVID tra- Tracking Project. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the mo- most important groups that has sprung up in the COVID area because they started tracking COVID data on a state-by-state basis mm-hmm. um, because the CDC wasn't, right? The CDC was doing a terrible job at this. And, so, uh, and, and, and certain states weren't doing great jobs either. So they had a lot of... Um, there, there was a lot of political pressure that stemmed from them basically going to each state health department. And they had contacts within almost every state health department that said, why aren't you tracking this data? Where do I find that data? What's going on here and there? And that, and that sort of thing. And, um, and I, I, I am, I'm the sort of person who really wants to call out the fact that the state health departments have really, I think, done a great job that they never thought they would have to do, right? Yeah. Um, Wait, and, they didn't think they would have to do something like this? Oh, never. You Okay, look at state Why health Why do they exist? <laughs> <laughs> look at state health departments and look at the things that they have had to track in the past. Like, the, the, the best of them were tracking, like, flu data on a weekly basis. Yeah. Right? And, and not publishing it, just reporting it to the CDC, right? But most of them track HIV data on a monthly basis. Yeah. Um, and so like, this is I, I, I don't want to disparage the hardworking people at the state health department. But for most of these guys, they they got here thinking, oh, here, this is a nice, cushy job where I don't have to do very much. Yeah. Right. And, and then this happens. And they're like, uh, what? so that's, that's interesting. Wait, I kind of want to disparage that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like. I, I don't know. I don't feel like I can go to my job and be like, this is a nice cushy job where I don't do very much. I mean, no, if I do that, they, they fire my ass. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really different mentality. It's kind of like, I mean, if you, you sure, surely have met enterprise developers, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. There is a different quality of developer between and, and enterprise developers. I mean, this is not to say they're bad. It's to say they're much more cautious, Right. They move way slower than anybody in like a big fang company. Um, anybody who's developing a new product, enterprise developers are like, hold on there, you know, keep your pants on. We'll get to it. And that that's like the midpoint between what I would consider a startup and a health state health department. Right. Oh my and God. So they're just, they're just slower normally now, which is, so you have to be, you have to be used to that. That's what you have to expect when you, you're like, Oh my God, these people turned around and added new columns in like three weeks. <sighs> Why is government bad so often? Maybe we have an answer. I don't know. I mean, like I get it that they're, I, I, I wasn't planning to turn this into some kind of an anti-bureaucracy <laughs> rant, but maybe I'm leaning in that direction. It, I, I, it's just about expectations, right? Like, it's just about like, what, what can we expect and should we expect? I don't, maybe we should expect better. I don't think we can. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know. I mean, I, it's not really clear to me that the U S has been doing particularly badly on a global scale. You know, there's, I, I mean, I, I think in an absolute scale, it's been an atrocious response, but I mean, 
maybe that's just the best that we can expect. And, you know, if you have hundreds of governments around the world and the United States is actually doing pretty well compared to, I don't know, like Europe, you know, all of these governments that are putatively supposed to be doing a, a very, like supposed to be very competent, you know, yeah. every, everybody says, well, you know, American government is wretched and look at how well the Europeans are at conduct themselves. I think that's the meme. One of, one of the very, very interesting things that I found about this is that we are doing about as well as you would expect us to do, um, given the realities of the ground, once you know what all those realities are. And so here, here's a very interesting, like we are, we're not doing great compared to like Finland, uh-huh. but we, we're, we're doing okay compared to like Spain. Okay. So why is, what's the big difference between Finland and Spain? Well, guess like, if you look at mortality data, Every single year, Spain gets hit harder by the flu than, than the Finns do. They just mm-hmm. they just do right, and you can uh, that it is an almost a one to one relationship between how badly a a particular European country does with the flu every single year, year in and year out, compared to their COVID response. And so it's not like Germany is doing particularly well with COVID. It's that Germans have a culture that is that is better at not spreading respiratory diseases anyway. And and that's just how they have always lived. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I, I have a real hard time going to Spaniards and being like, well, your country sucks because you have a you have a culture that's that's closer. Right. Denser. Um, more more physical contact. It's just like I I I think that accounts for a lot of, yeah. of what's happening. And I think when you take that into account, then it it, it everybody you know everything is monocausal and you know has to do with whatever <laughs> shit I'm on at, at this point. And so everybody looks at the numbers and it's like, well, that's clearly because of their COVID response. And it it like I'd put I'd put COVID response as a policy thing at like maybe number four or five. Yeah. On the list of important things to care about. Yeah, maybe maybe on the existing margins. I mean, I don't know. It, I mean, it took the FDA so fucking long to approve a vaccine that allegedly oh. was invented over the course of two days, right? Yeah. So, okay, like let me pitch this, which I think is provocative. Suppose the FDA didn't exist and companies were able to go and start producing this stuff and bring it to market immediately with no restrictions and price it however they wanted and say, all right, so we don't have some kind of approval that this works. We think it's probably going to work. Give it a shot if you want. No pressure. Like, I think that's a funny question because I think you're talking about, like, if that's the world that we lived in, I think you're talking about a society in which you have multiple tiers of, of like, multiple tiers of how people even approach medicine. Yeah. Uh, like I would be probably way in front of the line for that, but there's like entire, entire groups and cultures within the United States. that would be like, we're not going to touch this thing until this other maybe private authority has given it a stamp of approval. And, yeah. and, and that's just how we live. We live, I mean, we'd end up living with like the young tech bro culture doing all these experimental drugs, uh, I mean, and, we kind of already have that right, as, right. As, a, as a tech pro who's done experimental drugs. <laughs> but I mean, like experimental drugs that, you know, like make you healthier. Um, I'll for a broad enough definition of health. But, 
but well, I mean, like, but even with that, honestly, I mean, we, you know, like nootropics are big in Silicon Valley and like, you know, if you were to test the concentration of modafinil in San Francisco <laughs> sewers and, you know, say 2018, like, I, I think, it, I think, you know what you'd find. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, for something like vaccines, but so, yeah, I mean, that would be a different culture, but I don't know. It, it just seems to me that the existence of the FDA has been a net negative here. I, I, I am, I am very much inclined to agree. Um, but even, even though this is not really the sort of thing that I would put up on Twitter, just because it's picking a fight. Yeah. Right. Like if I, if I put that up on Twitter, I, I, I want people to feel like I am a very, I try to be very positive on Twitter. And so yeah. I'm, I'm like, you know, the FDA is working as fast as they can, which means that they're working all the way to 5 p.m. on Friday. Um, <sighs> <laughs> You're not selling me on government really math. <laughs> um, it, you know, th- 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 this is really like absolutely insanely fast for them. I, I, I really, I get very, very frustrated with saying that and saying we need to reform the FDA and move faster like obviously there are 450,000 people dead they didn't move fast enough right like that's to, to me that's obvious and it is so weird to me to have people then come up who like 5 seconds before were like the US response to this has been terrible then come in and like no hold your horses we can't move forward until we know it's safe and i'm like what do you want? I'm, I'm trying to calm down here because my wife is just going to like yell at me for like, you got you're freaking the kids out. Bless um, her. <laughs> right? Like, but, but, but that like, I, I don't understand how you can be like, well, U.S. response is terrible without then turning around and saying, we need reform at the FDA. We need reform at the CDC. They are not moving fast enough. Um, Was it? Wasn't Trump very early in his administration going to put I was it was it Thiel himself in charge of the FDA? I I I don't know. I feel like that stuck somewhere in the back of my mind from a long time ago, but I yeah, I that would have been awesome. I know. I mean like biggest fucking missed opportunity. I I mean like we I had a retrospective on the Trump administration with Tao and I didn't okay. ask him about that. And I think I should have because honestly that biggest fucking missed opportunity like can you imagine so yeah uh, can you imagine if Thiel had been running the the response to covid and had executed something like that and and the united states had just absolutely crushed it compared to the rest of the world uh, i i mean like people would have taken a lesson from that and he, the, uh, the, the, the difficulty ultimately is that um we are not far enough along the institutional separation of what people think from whatever bullshit the press is on about at any given time for that. Thing. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we may be getting there, but like Deborah, Deborah Burks is a no nonsense. Like she will not tolerate fools. And she and Anthony Fauci were in charge of a lot of stuff. And she was tasked with trying to reform the CDC. Okay. Mm-hmm. The pro publica, which I actually sometimes like published this absolute, hit piece on her and all of their stuff was like cdc employees bitching and moaning that she was making them work hard and it was like it was so repulsive to me that you've got this respected 
epidemiologist and ProPublica is basically out there calling her a bitch because she's because she's pushing the CDC to actually reform where they clearly screwed up. And 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 that was like that that's that's how the press works right now, which makes reform impossible because like because none of these none of these CDC whiners, quite frankly, had to go. They, none of their names were in here. Right. Yeah. It was like, oh, right. Because it's all anonymous. Because oh, Yeah. It was like several sources at the CDC. We heard from many people. In this, and I'm just like, it was all anonymous attack nonsense from someone who really was just saying, we didn't do a good job. We need to do a better job. So, okay. I, I think there are a couple of ways that we can, we can take it from here. Um, I mean, speaking of institutions that have fucked up really badly, <laughs> Um, I mean, like we can talk, I, I don't know. I, I certainly have strong views about the press response, which I, I view as just completely cack handed and unreflective. And I, I mean, like, frankly, I think everybody at like Vox and everywhere else that spent most of January and February of 2020 talking about how wearing masks is racist should just fall on their swords and learn to code. Right. But, um, I, I don't know. I mean, what or they can get jobs installing solar panels. Um, but, but like, I I don't know, what's, what's your overall take on it? And do do you see any kind of even hope or way forward for things not being abominable? That's a really Um, biased framing, but I don't know. Fuck them. What the, one of the most insane, I'm getting, I'm using the word insane. That's a bad word. Um, I can't say that because if I say it, someone's going to find it, man. And then I'm going to get fired. So anyway, (laughs) so I might bleep that out. (laughs) So the, um, I just, I recently did a book review from, uh, Richard Horton, who is the editor of the Lancet medical journal and, uh, and is, is writing a book or has written a book and it's on its second edition on what happened in COVID. And he is extremely pro WHO, right? And, and it was, it was such a great example of the bifurcation of, of factual realities, right? Where he's trying to write, he's intentionally trying to write a history of COVID. That's like the WHO got everything right. And the, and China's awesome. And the United States and the, and the UK are the only real villains in all of this. And like, like he wants to try President Trump or former President Trump for crimes against humanity for, for crimes against humanity, not literally in there <laughs> for crimes against no for for denying the WHO funding. Jesus fucking Christ! <laughs> Wait, who, this is a guy at Lancet. This is the guy who runs Lancet. This is the, the editor in chief of Lancet. This is the guy who runs Lancet, which published that study. From the that total schlock corporation that like had that that allegedly had medical data, but but it was clearly completely fabricated. None of these guys had any experience working in medicine, and w- yeah, yeah, that's a guy. So, I, so, so, so and that's he, it. Anyway, <laughs> he's, he is his in his book. He seems entirely convinced that the world, it, the time is right. For the world to basically, all governments of the world to hand over the reins of health policy directly to the WHO and give WHO like direct access to turn on quarantine 
or, you know, or, or force everyone to wear masks or like anything that, that they think we should do for any health emergency. He thinks the WA, he thinks the time is right for that to happen. Right. I look at this, uh, this, Good I, luck, buddy. Well, that's, but that's the, that's the alternate realities that I'm talking about. Like I look at this and I'm like the, the era of CDC, the area, the era of just listen to the CDC is over. Right. Like, I mean, not literally right now, but in the next 18 months, I think it is because the CDC is is beclowning itself. It's not giving realistic guidance. It's it, but, but several of the states have already just kind of thrown their thrown up their hands at the CDC and say, we don't care what you think. You can put out yeah. guidance all day long. We're not going to follow it. Right. And and so I think you're, you're going to end up with that that sort of like completely separate set of facts where where um, the, you know, there's, there's a sort of listen to science world that doesn't know how to define science other than whatever the CDC just told me. And then you have other people who are like, eh, I'm going to do this and I don't actually care what anybody says. Right. Um, which I'm not sure how that ends up. It sounds like bad news for everybody, but just different kinds of bad news. Yeah. I, well, okay. So you talk about these these institutions be clowning themselves, but consider the following: uh, a lot of people are not aware that FDR's response to the Great Depression was generally pretty atrocious. Like he, he did a couple of things that were great, and that I'm glad that he did, but he didn't have a strong understanding of why they were good, and he certainly didn't have like I mean you know so like insuring bank deposits for example has. You know, if if you want to go into the economics of it, they it, they can prevent diamond div- big bank runs on institutions that are solvent but illiquid, mm-hmm. as as banks often are, and so that can prevent you know large crashes in the supply of money, which leads to you know further negative economic consequences, which you know was a real problem during the Great Depression, and oh, yeah. there you know have just not been bank run issues in the United States since. So you know, full credit to FDR for that, although he had no idea what he was doing mm-hmm. because Diamond and Div didn't write until I want to say the eighties, but you know, that said a lot of the stuff that he did was frankly insane. And he, I would just, just really crazy. shit. And nevertheless, you know, if you look at history and you look at the, the reputation that FDR has and the way that, you know, the new deal is taught in school, he mm-hmm. saved America, right. you know, and, right. and, and people just don't have any kind of textured understanding of where he was good and where he was bad. And most of the institutions that FDR put in place still exist today and are viewed as like jewels of American government. So not to black pill, but. I, well, I think, I think this, I, I think that something really weird is happening right now. And I'm not sure the last time this happened, I don't want to be one of those weird people who's like, not since the American revolution, but I'm almost like not since the American revolution. Um, because we've got that there is so little trust among the institutions. You've got this guy who's clearly trying to influence history by trying to get out in front of history by writing a book on a historical thing that hasn't even stopped happening yet. Right. Yeah. Um, like Walter Durante. Right. And well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Somebody's going to yell at me, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's similar to that. It's, it's, it's the intentional it's the intentional propagandizing of history. And, and most of the time people don't pay attention to that and just kind of let it happen. 
but I feel like I feel like that era is coming to an end. I feel like people know that this is happening. They can see people doing these things. And, yeah. And and a certain group of people, a certain group of people don't accept it. And another group of people are just like, well, if you can do that, I'm going to do it over here for my team. Right. And and if I think we're at a real ground level on that sort of stuff, um, I think it's just starting to really kick off. Yeah, um, but there, there, there is a lot. There are a lot of people I know who have. Um, this is gonna sound so arrogant. It's just like they're thought leaders, right? They're they they they're thinkers who write stuff that people listen to and then spread their ideas. I mean, like the the Martin Bailey defense. I feel like in in intellectual circles, everybody knows what that is. That was. Wasn't that put, that idea put together on like Slate Star Codec or or Reddit or something in the last five years? Yep. Yeah. Um. I think so. So it wasn't originally from Scott, but he did popularize it. There, there were a number of philosophy papers that that mentioned it, and Scott wrote it up in a post, and it became very popular. And now everybody just kind of understands that metaphor. I, Scott Scott in particular is a real exemplar of this. He had a large audience and everybody sort of secretly read Scott sort of in the same way that everybody secretly read Steve Saylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know, not, not to identify Scott with Steve Saylor, which he doesn't need that in his life right now, but sure. you know, it, the sort of the same phenomenon where people like say Ezra Klein and I think to some, and you know, Connor's Connor Friedersdorf and mm-hmm. probably um, Megan, um, McArdle and and some others, you know, pe- people from the old blogosphere mm-hmm. who were really genuinely good and talented, who ended up getting mainstream media jobs. They didn't stop reading blogs, and yeah. so they they kept funneling this stuff out even as as they got into these relatively major positions, and mm-hmm. you know, then subsequently were run out of the their media companies by the 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 new wave of whatever you want to characterize this as. Do you think you're ever going to interview Matt, Matthew Iglesias? Um, I I would be happy to interview Matthew Iglesias. Then I won't say anything about him. Oh <laughs> no! I mean, feel free. I I think I think I don't know. I I'm. It had never occurred to me that I might do that, and I don't see what you would have to gain from coming on Robot Friends. But I I would give him a fair shake, and you can say what you want. I won't necessarily bring it up, but go oh, for sure, it. Sure. No, so like Matthew Iglesias, I think if he if he has one really big talent, um, it is that he can see what's going on and he gets ahead of it. Yeah, right? like in the industry, and I honestly think I am uncertain as to what he genuinely thinks about anything because I take every single thing he says with such an enormous grain of salt because I have no idea. I don't. He's. I feel like he is often writing to influence rather than writing because that's what he thinks about something. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think that's somewhat true of him. I think he's sort of Straussian in the way that he writes, where you can tell what he actually thinks, but he's almost never willing to come out and say it. Mm-hmm. I I appreciate him much more than I do the the other person who I identify sort of in that same I don't know tranche with him. Who who is Ezra Klein? Who I I find to be deeply disingenuous. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, I, and so so his movement to Substack is. I view it as less of a getting kicked out of Vox and more of a getting ahead of the next wave of stuff. Yeah. 
I that's interesting. Did did you listen to his podcast with Robert Wright where he no. talked? Uh, okay, it's it's good. He talked with Robert Wright. I I'm so glad that Blogging Heads is kind of making a comeback. I, I think we're kind of hitting some kind of a resurgence of the blogosphere at this point, which we very badly need. So, I mean, Blogging Heads was. I talked about it in in another episode of Robot Friends, but Blogging Heads was sort of the original, like people in media getting together and having relatively unguarded conversations. And mm-hmm. I mean, everybody who is big now used to go on Blogging Heads back in the day when when they were stitching video together from you know individual computers and people were talking right. on the phones and recording that. Yep. So I mean, like you know, McArdle and Ezra Klein and Iglesias and all those guys. So Matthew Iglesias has been going back and Blogging Heads lately. Oh, okay. And he, he had an interview with Robert Wright where he was discussing his move to Substack and his his exodus from Vox. And reading between the lines, it became pretty clear that he was feeling very constrained working there mm. as as somebody who, yes, he was a founder, but he was not in management at that point. He was actually part yeah. of the union, apparently. Oh, okay. And you know, he was just going and saying things on Twitter that really were were not compatible with the Vox company line and mm management probably had some pretty pointed conversations with him. And I think eventually he got uncomfortable to the point that he left. Was he run out? I don't want to say that, but I think he's probably, I get the vibe that he's not sufficiently capable of suppressing himself to, to be able to toe the line like that. Whereas Ezra Klein, I I don't see him having that problem. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I I think that, I think that movement, like I, if, if I were on the left, I would be a little bit freaked out by the rise of Substack just how fast it's gotten and who's big there. Right. Because I, um, I, I, Substack does not pay my bills. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not close to paying my bills, but it's like, it's bigger than my bonus was this year. Right. Wow. Um, it's, that's, I, I, I make a decent amount of money on, on, on Substack and I consider myself to be like a mid-level low to mid-level earner. There, like, there are a lot bigger people than me on Substack. Yeah, um, if, have you talked to Razib yet? No. Oh, maybe I should. Razib would be very interesting to talk to. Oh, he's great. But he, I mean, I know he's. I mean, he's got to be making more money than I do because he's he's up on the leaderboards. Anyway, this is all that's all nonsense. But yeah. I think I think the Substack, along with the blogging resurgence, I mean, the, the what happened before was you would start a blog, you would blog for free uh, until you got big enough or popular enough or you, you turned the right head and then you would get a job at the Washington post or mm-hmm. times or whatever. And then you could be canceled from that position as received. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, oh, God, the minute somebody found something that you wrote and, and which, which made it actually made it actually worse for people who are like received or Scott and just, just write insane amounts of stuff because the more stuff you write, the more you're going to say something bad somewhere right um substack is if substack is a resurgence of blogging then media companies should be very very worried because um uh because substack is paying those people already like you you could if someone read my substack and they're like this guy's great i want to get him in the washington post i would be i would tell them no um, I don't care. I don't want to be in the Washington Post. I have a real job. It right. Means- <laughs> <laughs> Washington Post. No, thank you. I work for a living. Right. 
no, I, 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 have a, I have a good job. I enjoy it. I like my colleagues. This is a thing I do on the side. It's mildly influential. Um, but it, it, I, th- there are a lot of people who listen to me or listen to the things I write. You know, um, I show up in the national, I show up a national review. I know there are some people who at major publications who read what I write about COVID and then, and, and look at it as a sort of like, maybe this is a thing I should go investigate because this guy is pulling up all the, all the stuff that he thinks is interesting from wherever he gets all of his stuff, which I, I just recently wrote a, po- a post about like, where do I get all my stuff? Well, here. And, and the answer is like rationalists. Um, but it, it, the real answer is like I have I I have run into people who have either agreed with something I said or corrected me on something I've said, and then they get kind of put onto a list uh, because they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, and and then I watch them, right? And so I've got a list of probably about a hundred epidemiologists and virologists and and data people and my you know my my flu can, Canadian flu surveillance guy. Um, and if I have a question, I just run it by them, and they have. They know what's going on, right? I see that as the future of, I don't know what to call it. I don't want to call it journalism because that word is too tainted already. Yeah, right. Um, but but it's the future of information dispersal, I think. Um, I if, if, you, if you read what I write, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I'm going to continually sound arrogant here. If you read Do what it. I write, you, you know what's, what the news is going to be three weeks from now. Because yeah. it, that's how long it takes for the news to catch up. That sounds a bit like a formalization of some of what was happening on Twitter in January, February 2020 when, I mean, everybody was just masking up months ahead, you know, and I've I've yelled about this before, but you didn't, you you almost didn't need to be an expert in that case. And I think experts were in some ways overcautious given, well, you know, like the (laughs) the loss function over over which they, they should have been operating, but I mean, you know, like you just needed to know that there is a virus. China seems to be taking it incredibly seriously and they're locking mm-hmm. everything down. Mm-hmm. Also, viruses spread mm-hmm. like that. That's it. That's all you need to know. <laughs> like, perhaps you should get a mask. Right. Well, it, it's it's that was the so that was the pre times. That was the before times. When yeah. The way the information spread was that. The CDC got a committee together and they all looked at, at, at what was going on and they said, hmm, what is the what is the least offensive thing that we think people will listen to? And, you know, and a group of 12 people come to write up a, write up a PowerPoint on that. And then they train all of the people who are, who they're going to send out to do the press release to say all the same things. So nobody gets confused. Um, and then that press release goes out and someone from Vox ingests it and then barfs it back up in a conversational tone. Right. Yep. And and acts like they're super smart for doing so. That part, that the attitude there is so insulting because it's yeah. just it's just a press release. Anybody can read a press release. Um, and yeah, put it back up and make it smug. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I mean, it it does seem like there are these alternative information networks that are just kind of growing out right now, and I think. I think you're much more formal about it than I am because I'm, I mean like, Hey, executive function, man, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to put together a list of people, but, but I also have one in the back of my head. I mean, there are certain questions where I can throw it up on Twitter. And honestly, I mean, my, my follower shout out to every single one of my followers. You are all 
fantastic people. And like the, like as a collective, you know, if I have a question about something, I can just mm-hmm. ask it and people will respond yep. out of the goodness of their hearts. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's some, I mean, sometimes people get snippy at each other, but generally like people come to a consensus often very quickly and it's good. And, you know, it's, it's going to be better than whatever bullshit is processed through a committee at, you know, one third of the pace. So, you know, maybe you can't institutionalize that in, in some sense, but, um, you know, there's that, there's that, uh, um, organizational structure, political compass, you know? Um, so, so like the, the four quadrants are going from, going the traditional order so like quadrant one which is authoritarian right is hierarchy and quadrant two which is authoritarian left is like there's some central node sending out information to everybody so like completely centralized mm-hmm. yeah. um the the libertarian left is like sort of sort of like like a unified structure where every node is connected to every other node. And you look at like sort of a consensus outcome mm-hmm. and then you have libertarian, right? Which I think is in some ways, most what's being implemented on Twitter, whether Twitter wants it or not, which is just like spontaneous order and, you know, looking at swarm behavior and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And I, I think almost the existence of Twitter is sort of moving away from these relatively authoritarian models, whether it's hierarchical, mm-hmm. Or, or centralized to just these kind of consensus structures or these spontaneous swarm structures. And, and just the fact that this is how people are able to connect and pass information along is almost biasing, biasing the outcome toward, toward the sort of outcomes that those, those structures would, would naturally generate. And I mean, maybe I, I think that's good because holy shit, our centralized and, and hierarchical information structures are terrible. They are. They are absolutely terrible. And, and it was, it was, I was so funny because I started talking about this on Substack and then all like a whole bunch of shit happened with Scott Alexander and he started talking about it, which is really embarrassing when like you start talking about a topic and in between part one and part two, Scott Alexander starts talking about it. <laughs> then you're just like, well, shit, I can't just rip off. Come on. Yeah. Um, I feel like he is. He comes up with better metaphors than I do. <laughs> he, he, he's, I, think, I feel like he's kinder to people than I am. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's, and part of that is, is rhetorical. Um, I, I, I grew up. I'm old, I think I'm older than he is. I'm probably the oldest person you've interviewed. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> I grew up. Joel. Joel's pretty old. Oh, okay. No offense, Joel. <laughs> uh, but I, I grew up like ingesting the sort of rhetorical, the rhetorical pattern of political writing. And I would say like, like, like a PJ O'Rourke sort of pattern is the, is the thing that I would most love to oh, God. emulate. Is he still here? Is he still with he's still us? Around. He's still around. I am curious how he's writing. I mean, like when I think about journalists or, I mean, I don't know, is he more of a pundit? I need to think about that, but people that I, I really adore. I mean, I think about him. I think about, um, Burke breathed, breathed, what, yeah, however yeah. you pronounce his name. I mean, like Tom Wolf, I wish Tom Wolf were still oh, here, man. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, so, like <laughs> so. So anyway, like I'm, I, my, my default pattern of discussion is, is especially when I get into sort of pundit mode. Yeah, is, is to write as a pundit, which I don't particularly like about myself, and I can rein a lot of it in, uh, back when I'm doing my Substack stuff because I go into sort of like an explainer mode mm-hmm. on a lot of my, a lot of my stuff. And my explainer uh, writing is 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 both 
intentional and by default a lot more generous to people because I don't see how I can part of it is because I like being generous to people, but part of it is like I want these people to keep talking to me. Mm. Um and I like I don't want to you know I I ended up doing an interview that I never ended up publishing because I could not find the right space for it with mm-hmm. some people within the Florida Department of Health. I talked to the head of the Florida Department of Health who is just like a massively experienced epidemiologist, uh, MD, sort of like with, with enormous amounts of, 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 uh, of history, uh, looking at pandemics. I think she looked at Ebola stuff, just like, great, right? And she sat down and talked to me where she wasn't talking to any journalists. Now, why? I think it's because journalists, when they sit down and talk to someone, that person can't trust what they're going to report. Yeah. Right. And they're going to take anything like any weirdo little comment you say off to the side and they're going to report that one thing and be like, this person believes this crazy thing. Whereas what you what you actually said was, you know, this sort of thing might be true. We don't have a lot of evidence for it right now, but, we're, you know, we're keeping it in the back of our minds. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you get those two those sort those two sorts of that interaction ends up happening. I feel a lot. And so I, I ended up sitting down and talking with them and it was fascinating because I wanted to know, I was trying to write about the, uh, the life cycle of a data point, right? Walk me through what happens between the swab going in a person's nose and that, and, and, and the number going up by one in a, in the state health dashboard. Yeah. Like, what's that look like? Right. And so we ended up sitting down and it was such a fascinating conversation because they were talking about the way they clean the data. Uh, And I have enough. I'm not a database uh, uh, administrator or anything, but but I know enough to ask the right questions. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there are things like um, they 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 do a hard clean where they have, you know, here's a patient. The patient is at this hospital. The patient has a unique ID. For, for them. And so when we get a secondary positive for them, then we, um, uh, then we don't, we don't double count them. Right. Um, and so the, the numbers that they release weekly are just literally how many tests, but then, or the, the, I'm sorry, the numbers they release daily are how many tests, but then they clean those up numbers up on a weekly basis and they get rid of duplicate individuals who have taken tests. Um, they, they actually do a soft cleaning on that data where they like, Oh, well, here's a person and it, they're the same race and they have the same birthday and they're in the same county. That's the same person. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but they, they do some sort of statistical uh, uh, estimation based on that. And, and, and they go through this. I have never read any of that information anywhere. That's really great information. Like it would be uh, normal. People can actually, quite frankly, either either normal people can understand that sort of information or they're not going to read it because they don't care. Yeah, there's there's no reason to not have that information out there, but you're never going to get a journalist to write that down legibly. They they don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, that that's one of the reasons I I mean, backing up just a little bit, you, you mentioned the way that journalists will, you know, condense things down and probably end up misrepresenting it in, in some way or another, either deliberately or not. I actually see that as one strength of what I'm trying to do here, mm. which is, you know, I, I ask people if they want to come on and people say yes, and it's great. And I, I appreciate everybody who talks to me. And 
one thing that I want to offer is just a platform where I'm not going to meaningfully edit podcasts. And the reason I'm not going to meaningfully edit podcasts is because I'm incredibly lazy and that's so much <laughs> fucking work. But a second, a second reason is that I just want people, I, I don't want to strip contexts out mm. of whatever people are saying. And, you know, if, if people come and talk on here, like I'm just going to put out what they say unless they deeply regret it. And you know what? That's fine too. Like I don't, I'm not trying to get people to incriminate themselves on air. Uh, although if you'd like to, you're welcome. But I, I mean, I, I guess you did early. You did earlier in the podcast. You cut up a penny. Feds will be at your door in any minute. Um, but and letting people speak in their own voice is the future. I think. Like, yeah. Understanding the context, I see. I see an entire like sub industry of information dissemination that is essentially anti-cancel and anti-dunk. Right. Yeah. And and I see them just saying like coming to a place where it's like some little Vox shithole comes in and tries to scour their writings for some dunk. And then they they publish the dunk on Vox and, and the entire group of people who matter just shrug their shoulders. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Or like, you know, like I was, I was talking with QC yesterday when, you know, in response to the, the Scott Alexander thing, which we should definitely talk about in a second. And like, you know, everybody told him not to talk to the New York Times reporter because God knows what they're going to, you know, mm-hmm. excerpt from from your interview. That it, it, like, you know, typically journalists know what piece they're going to want. They're, they're trying to write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an interview will often just be the journalist sitting down and like trying to poke you and get you to say the precise set of things that they want to include in the piece. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Whereas, you know, like with QC, I, I had no agenda. He He was somebody who... Cade Metz, Katie Metz, whatever, um, had, had reached out to. And I mean, like, fine. You want to talk about Scott? You want to talk about rationalists? Like, I'm happy to just give somebody a platform and let them go off however mm-hmm. they want for as long as they want. And um, I mean, like, sure, you could excerpt it, but the source material is out there. They Anybody who wants to listen to it can just go and listen to the entire unexpurgated interview. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think... There's, I think there's a whole, a whole set of patterns that are going to bloom out of this. I think you, like, if someone came to me, and this has happened multiple times, someone comes to me and they're like, I don't think what you wrote was correct. And I'm like, awesome. Why? Like, let's talk about that. And if, if, if I am so wrong that I feel that I've misled my audience in some way, I'll write about it. Right. And I'll just like, I'll just put what you said up there. I'll quote you. I I have quoted people at, at length. That for conversations that we've had in DMs where they have some specific expertise level knowledge. And, and I'm like, I don't really even feel qualified to edit you on this. So I'm just going to, I'm going to take what you said and we're going to put it over here and I'm going to send you a copy of it. And if you have any edits you want to make to that, that's fine. But, uh, you know, but, but being the, the previous iteration of media was about being right all the time. And I think the next iteration is going to be very comfortable with being wrong. Yeah. But, and, and correcting yourself, especially if you can correct yourself. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, like I, you know, thinking about the, the way the government is operated, like I, I think if, if you have a position as an, as a capital A authority, there's an incredible cost admitting at any point that you might've been wrong, you know, mm, because yeah. like, you know, your 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 authority rests on 
actually understanding what you're talking about. And I mean, frankly, a lot of authorities don't. And most of the problems that exist in the real world are not like solving a fucking physics problem. Right. It's it's messy and it's difficult. And some people really do deserve, you know, the label of expert, but you know, with the understanding that it should convey I've dealt with problems like this before. I have a fairly good sense of how to work through them, but not like I'm some kind of infallible figure. And I don't know, maybe maybe throughout the 20th century, the the rise of institutions and and kind of a you know really centralized media system built up built up this idea of an expert in in such a way that you, you know really reinforced this kind of a priestly position. And I I think that might be. Well, I, I mean, I hope it's crumbling now, and I don't know that it was ever good. So, so okay. Um, what you, you you've got some views on the the Scott Alexander thing? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like how how we got do we have to narrow this down? Are we talking about the New York Times stuff? Or? Yeah, the New York Times thing. I think in particular. I, I mean, like maybe one way to frame it is, I so one angle that has been somewhat discussed is like maybe it's a jab at a competitor at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a matter so much of trying to destroy the rationalists because you know, they're, they, they have wrong think, although I'm not even really sure that they do, but, but more like they're there. It's sort of an alternate source of authority at this point. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Scott is mm-hmm. clearly not a journalist in the traditional sense, no. but he's massively influential. And, you know, may, maybe this is an attempt to like cut the legs out from under Scott or from under Substack generally. Although I think that's going to be impossible. Oh no, there's that's there's no way that's going to happen. And part of the part of the difficulty is that journalists borrow their authority from someone else. They borrow their knowledge authority from institutions. They don't trust. In, they they occasionally will trust an individual scientist, but they only trust an individual scientist who's telling them what they already want to hear. Right? Yeah. Um, Whereas if you want any level of real discussion about anything, even remotely technical, you have to talk to someone who is technical and journalists just are not. They can't be. They have to cover too much stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you'll get like a, a science like a, a science journalist who has some sort of specialty that, that gives them a little bit of a leg up. But even then, they end up covering like – you'll get a science journalist who needs to cover both astrophysics and genetics. And those are such disparate topics. Yeah, it's really hard to be really well versed in both of them. Um, so if if the New York Times had wanted to do an honest piece on Scott, they would have pulled in Ross Douthat, who yeah. actually who has read Scott, who has referenced Scott, and who is 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 reasonably sympathetic to some of the stuff Scott says. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he he clearly would be the person that I would go to. Is is I, Russ is Russ still at New York Times? He is. He okay. Is. I, I assume it is because he's very good at politics. I think he's real careful about what he says, and he knows how to run the game at the at the New York Times. Yeah, he must not have published anything controversial because I, I have actually not thought about him in a while. He's certainly. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're right. It has been a little while. Hmm. I mean, like you know, um, compare him with like Brett Stevens, who. <laughs> Uh, apparently, so you know, there there was that thing around the pandemic reporter who was who was more or less fired. Um, did you see that Brett Stevens had a column that was spiked by uh, Salzberger himself? Oh my gosh i I didn't know it. I didn't know it went that high, but I saw I saw that he was he was talking about something. I don't see I don't see how this can hold, man. Yeah, well, okay, but but it gets even better. Reportedly, <laughs> the reason that Salzberger spiked the column 
was because Brett Stevens was calling the firing of, of the, of the other journalist. I think McNeil was his name. Um, he was saying that it was incredibly stupid and inconsistent mm-hmm. and attacking the policy. Uh, I mean, like, you know, this is just like a, a, a use for like distinction. And, and like, then he specifically went and dropped an N word in his column, quoting the New York times. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's Give it to me. <laughs> right into my veins, right? So uh, I, I don't know what I don't know what Brett Stevens' future is gonna be, but um yeah, I mean like how how is the New York Times even gonna continue functioning like this? I mean it seems like it it's just an institution at war with itself, which you know, again, right into my veins, but also like what what, <laughs> what happens next? There's yeah. I think there's a huge what happens next problem because like here's the crazy thing about this, like I don't think the New York Times realized what on earth they were doing here. I thought I think they looked at the Scott Alexander situation. They're like, well, we got to get this guy. Right. But then they released this thing that is so transparently vindictive and and dishonest. And Scott basically like, OK, if like are, we're, so we're going to do this. OK, fine. Let's yeah. do this. And and. I, I don't know how you can ever trust the I, you can trust the New York Times. I I I mean I I have a subscription because I'm trying to write a lot more about COVID, especially a lot of the history stuff. And the a lot, New York Times still has a lot of important stuff to happen. But I'm honestly thinking about just downloading all the all the articles I need, finding the people themselves that they talk about in those articles, and just going in go and interview interview them on my own, right? Yeah. Because. Because that the New York Times is, I don't think, uh, I don't think they they're interested at all in actually informing anyone anymore. Yeah, well, so I mean, like the thing is though, like I I, I was mulling this over after talking with QC yesterday, and, and you know we spent a lot of time just shitting on the New York Times, which is great, <laughs> but. I mean, like, consider, you know, I mentioned Durante earlier. For those of you who don't know, Walter Durante was a New York Times columnist or correspondent in Ukraine who actually had a major role in the West papering over the fact that Stalin was, you know, genociding Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And, and he, you know, he went there and he was reporting that the, you know, Ukrainians had ample food and it was a glorious Soviet future when in fact, you know, millions of them were, were literally dying from having grain shipped out from Ukraine and they were being shot in the fields if they were eating and it, it, it just, just a nightmare. And, you know, he was just a, a basically a blatant Stalinist toady. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like, you know, it, it's not like that has been the only time that the, the New York times has been atrocious i mean even more recently you know you have you have the case of judith miller who was basically just writing columns in in 2002 2003 where she was feeding you know bush government assertions about weapons of mass destruction directly directly into the new york times they were they were just printing this shit Mm -hmm. and i i just i i mean like this doesn't seem like something new to me and it, it seems like for a very long time the new york times is not been super interested i mean you know it's it's large institution it's hard to ascribe a motive to an entire institution but it seems clear to me that they're not willing to go and reckon with these things or like take a long hard look about why they're fucking up so badly somewhat consistently and putting things in place to make sure it doesn't happen again 
the, a lot of the New York Times, and, and this is, a, uh, you know, part of the conversation about institutional knowledge is, is the, the, the knowledge that comes out of the CDC is supposed to be institutional, right? It's supposed to be like, all, all the best people have looked at this. This is the best information you could possibly have. So we should therefore defer to it. The New York Times is like a step down from that where it's still an institution, but they are used to whatever words come are printed on their paper. That is a truth. Yeah. And it is a truth that people, it's a, it's a meaningful truth and it is an influential truth that people will then act upon. People will take this and they will guide, they will use it to guide their further, um, their further truth reckoning and the, the, you know, the next level of their decision-making. And to that end, if you, if you read the, uh, the Scott Alexander piece from that perspective, then what you read out of this is them saying, here's a person who has influence, not knowledge influence, which is the thing that we own. And you can't trust him because other, because reasons, right? right. And the reasons were clearly ridiculous. They were, they were absurd. It's just like, because Peter Thiel reads him. Well, so right. I, Peter Thiel probably reads the New York Times. I assume he does. Right? Maybe not anymore. But but like you can't the 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 ways that they went after Scott were not newsworthy in any way. They were they were transparently they were either ridiculous or just like borderline purely false. Yeah. So do you view it as retributive for for Scott like front running the story back in back in I, June? I view it at a at a higher meta level than that. I view it as them trying to um, it, it's not retributive in the sense that, I mean, it is because they're all assholes, but it's not, <laughs> it's not retributive in the sense that they were like, we're going to publish this and ruin his life. It's retributive in the sense that they're like, uh Oh, here he comes back at us. We need to get ahead of his story. We need to get ahead of him and cut him off at the ankles because if we don't, we're going to get our lunch eaten. And, and it was so obviously that sort of thing where they're trying to get ahead of the story by, by, by establishing early on that there's this new guy and he's over at Substack and a bunch of people are reading him. Um, but we know that he's actually a jerk. Um, yeah. And, and it was so bad at that. That was the weird thing. The weirdest thing about this to me was how obviously obviously they missed to the mark here. Yeah. And it was, it was atrocious writing. Like, so you, it, I, I mean, just, I don't know. I, there, there's some level of awe that I continuously have about some of these pieces where it's like, aren't you embarrassed about this? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I worked for a while at a firm where I was doing publicly facing stuff mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I I was not particularly good at that job. And part of it was that in order to really succeed at producing the kind of content they wanted at the volume they wanted, mm-hmm. like I would have had to do things that were just embarrassing to me. <laughs> and, and I mean, and I have done things that are embarrassing, but, and, and in fact, my, I mean, like my epidemiology paper, you know, it, it wasn't wrong. I didn't mislead anybody. But God, it was just, it shouldn't have been published. It was trash. It was total trash. (laughs) And, but no, now I'm, now I'm like, you know, first name on a epidemiology paper in a good journal. It's like, what what, what else is happening in this field? So I don't know. But but, I mean, the Kane Metz piece was just, I mean, it was just another level, you know, it, it, I would have been embarrassed to turn that into a middle school teacher. 
these these guys I feel are they are all in on the idea that they are prestigious and do not understand that that prestige must be maintained with quality in order for it to keep working. You can't simply state that you are prestigious. It's, I mean, it's like the, you know, if you can though, I think you might be able to, but but if you, but if that knowledge gets out that you can simply state that you're prestigious, then everyone's going to do it. Right. Yeah. Okay, uh, new tagline, Robot Friends, the most prestigious podcast on the internet. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I, and, I, and I'm going to borrow that prestige. I'm going to put, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to this and be like, here I, here I am on the most prestigious podcast. <laughs> oh, man. I, and, and, and like we're joking about this, but I think this is like a real thing that's going to end up happening where it's like the, the concept of prestige becomes utterly meaningless because people because people borrow it with humor in their hearts and and make jokes about it. And so you can't actually like I imagine people from Substack starting a, 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 a like a joke award ceremony where we all hand awards to each other and then we. And we pretend like this is then like a really big deal that we're giving each other awards because that's what journalists do all the time. <laughs> the fucking Pulitzer, right? Right. No, we're gonna have the Substack Pulitzer, and we're gonna gi- we're gonna give it to ourselves, and then we're gonna put it up on our feet, and then other people are gonna want the Substack Pulitzer, and it's just like, why not? Why shouldn't we do that? That is how transparent all of this has become. Maybe we should. Oh, we should. We should name it after Scott. <laughs> Like the the annual Scotty Awards, we should give one person the Mott and the other person the Bailey. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we should have like the best in group writer and the best out group writer. Oh man, you could go you could go everywhere with this. Yeah, no shit. You know, I'll maybe I, I I don't read enough to do this, but but maybe I could like give out commemorative patches every year. I will I will give a thousand dollars. To someone, to, if if someone wants to put this together, let's. I mean, let's talk like plaques and trophies and everything. Like, yeah, hell yeah, no, we should do this. Okay, um, <laughs> do you? Okay, so I mean, like the people who's influential enough to do this. I mean, like so Matt Blaze on there. Razib, Razib, he, he would be up for this. Man. Oh shit! Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> so so Razib, we we could talk directly to Substack too. I bet they might be into it. So, I mean, like, who's big? So, like, Razib's big, Scott's big, Andrew Sullivan mm-hmm. is big, yep. Iglesias is big. Um, I can oh. get in contact with her. Wait, really? That That's amazing. Your your Rolodex is, is incredible. Um, Yeah, we should talk about this, and, and we should come up with some 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 means of, like, nominating these things. Yes. But I I am fully supportive of this. We need to make Substack more prestigious than institutional journalism, which in a lot of ways I, I think it kind of should be. like. Because like the it's um you just have to be fucking good if you want to make it on Substack because anybody can subscribe to you and anybody can ditch you at any point in time if you be clown mm-hmm. yourself. Yep. And it's not like that, you know. I mean, like what people are going to stop subscribing to Washington Post because they have a stupid, you know, uh, a motto now, which they do. But <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, okay, let's um. We can we can continue this in another <laughs> in some other forum, but like and that's, and that's not a joke. A thousand, I will put a thousand dollars into this. I'll put a thousand dollars into it. Hell yeah! Okay. 
I, yeah, let's. I, I don't know what kind of like award ceremony we can have, but there should be something. Yes, I, and, I will do this. I will. I will fly to a different city for this. This is. Oh man, this would be awesome. I I will wear a mask and present awards as <laughs> is my right as the most prestigious podcast ever. Awesome. Oh man. Okay. Well, hey, we're at like an hour and hour and ten or eleven minutes. You want to call it? I think this is yeah. a great note to end on. No, I mean, I, 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 I want to come back on some other time after Baby Robot um, is around. Yeah. But yeah, this has been a blast. Yeah, man. <laughs> we're, we're we're right at the beginning. There's so much more to talk about, and, and we've just scratched the surface. But this has been so much fun. Yeah. Well, hey, man. I like literally anytime. You know where I live. Oh yeah. All right. And the same goes for you. You guys are welcome. We love you. Yep. All right. Uh, Hey, all, this has been Polymath at Polymath with an I, not a Y. Polymath.substack.com. Thanks for coming on, dude. Uh, Thanks for having me.